I welcome everybody. Um, my name is Tim Presswell. I'm a, a human geographer from Royal Holloway, and I'm chairing the session today. Um, this session is part of uh, the LSE Literary Festival. It's the fifth uh, literary festival held by LSE. It started on Tuesday evening and ends on Saturday evening. So today's event is going to focus on the relationship between writing and places, both human and natural, and the combination of the two. And it forms part of the wider flowering of what might be called environmental writing or place writing, or may maybe people will have other suggestions. Writing that explores the world around us within a number of literary forms, but particularly a form that uh, I think people are beginning to use the term creative non-fiction. Uh, maybe that isn't what people use, but it's one that's become gaining in popularity. Um, before we start, I just want to remind everybody to turn their mobile phones off, and that includes the speakers. Um, it's not good to be interrupted in mid-process. And to tell you that um, the event is being recorded, and hopefully a podcast will go online subject to there being no uh, technical difficulties along the way. So you should be able to catch up with it later or tell your friends about it. Um, so we have um, three people to talk to us today. I'll introduce each of them um, in before they speak rather than all at once. Um, the first person that's going to speak to us is Paul Farley. Um, Paul Farley has received widespread acclaim for his poetry, one of Britain's leading poets, including the Whitbread Prize, the Somerset Morn Award and the E.M. Forster Award and the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year. Uh, from 2000 to 2002, he was poet in residence at the Wordsworth Trust in Grasmere. As a broadcaster, he's made many programmes with the BBC on art, landscape and literature, including Auden's Six Unexpected Days, The Larkin Tapes and Children of the Whitson Weddings. Uh, Edgelands, a non-fiction book co-written with Michael Simmons Roberts, has been serialised as a Radio 4 Book of the Week in 2011, and his latest collection of poetry, The Dark Film, is a poetry book society choice. So um, I'm, they're all going to have about 15 minutes, and I'm going to be abrupt if they go over that. So excuse me, all of you, if I'm only moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Um, I feel like a total interloper reading with uh, proper prose um, writers. Um, this isn't what I normally do. And also, I'm not with my other half, uh, my significant other, who's Michael Simmons-Roberts. Um, I don't think I've ever read from Edgelands without Michael sitting or standing next to me. And it's going to seem a bit odd because I'm going to use this we. And it's not the, this pronoun, it's not the royal we, it's the Edgelands we. It's the kind of combined voice of, of Michael and myself. Um, and I thought I'd just read from the introduction to the book um, so you can hear a bit of the book, those of you who've, who've not come across it before. Um, I don't think there's anything else I need to warn you about. Um, do you know who Jack Hargreaves is? Do people still know who he... Yeah. He used to have a programme called Out of Town. I watched it as a boy in the 70s. He used to... Um, what did he do? He whittled a lot. Um, Whittered or whittled? Whittled, yeah. And he was in a shed. It was shot in a shed often. And I loved it. Can you hear me? Sorry. Um, I can't hear you. Um, so let me put my glasses on and read some of this... Um, some of this book to you. So this is the very beginning of the book, and I'll just read a few sections from, from the introduction. 
In the English imagination, the great escape might go something like this. You get into your car, merge into traffic, and join a busy motorway via one of the feeder roads from the city. After an hour or two, you leave at the correct junction and join an A road, which you follow for a while before turning off onto smaller, quieter roads that elide into narrow lanes. Eventually, the lane dips and climbs through wooded hollows, affording sudden views as it follows the line of a ridge, then descends to a track where an ivy-clad cottage waits, a light burning in its window. The key is under the mat. You notice the cottage has a name rather than a number, Albion. You let yourself in to its cool, wainscoted hallway where a clock ticks and time runs backwards. For a long while, an entire childhood, in fact, we wondered where the countryside actually was, or even if it really existed. Growing up on the edge of two cities, Liverpool and Manchester, in the early 70s, it was easy enough to walk for a short while and soon find yourself lost in back lanes or waste ground, to follow the wooded perimeters of a golf course, an old path leading through scratchy shrubland, or the course of a drainage ditch. It was easy enough to find yourself on the edges of arable land, to follow the trackbed of a dismantled railway or descend into an abandoned quarry. But none of this ever really felt like the countryside, the sunlit uplands of jigsaw puzzles and ladybird (laughs) books, the rolling hills of biscuit tin lids, the meadowlands and glades in the framed reproduced pastorals our parents hung on our living room walls or that we saw on television or read about. We were sceptical to a point at which we wondered whether this elsewhere was in fact a total fiction, lit and staged, in the same way the moon landings a few years earlier had been confected. Though not even the CIA could invent a character like Jack Hargreaves from the then long-running TV series Out of Town. We loved Jack. Whether he was tying his own flies for trout, lamping for rabbits on moonless nights, or dipping a horseshoe into the hissing water of a dark smithy. Jack was all we had to go on, proof positive that the countryside was a real place that still existed. But how did you get there? So much might depend on being able to see the Edgelands. Giving them a name might help, because up until now they had been without any signifier, an incomprehensible swathe we passed through without regarding untranslated landscape. And Edgelands, by and large, are not meant to be seen, except perhaps as a blur from a car window or as a backdrop to our most routine and mundane activities. Edgelands are part of the gravitational feel of all our larger urban areas, a texture we build up speed to escape as we hurry towards the countryside, the distant wilderness. The trouble is, if we can't see the Edgelands, we can't imagine them or allow them any kind of imaginative life. And so, they don't really exist. The smaller identities of things in the Edgelands have remained largely invisible to most of us. Everyone knows, after a sentence or two of explanation, their local version of the territories defined by this word, Edgelands. But few people know them well, let alone appreciate them. Our book is an attempt to celebrate these places, to break out of the duality of rural and urban landscape writing, to explore these unobserved parts of our shared landscapes. 
as poets in the English lyric tradition. It's so weird without Michael sitting next to me. So it's <laughs> totally freaking me out. I keep wanting to... T- as poets in the English lyric tradition, we are drawn to the idea of praise, of celebration. And we are equally aware of its difficulty. The Edgelands are a complex landscape, a debatable zone, constantly reinventing themselves as economic and social tides come in and out. Of course, the idea of Edgelands does not just refer to parts of the physical environment. It's a rich term for poetry, too, and can maybe help to break down other dualities. Poets have always been attracted by the overlooked, the telling details, the captured moments. And the moment is important here, too. If parts of remote rural Britain feel timeless, though this feeling is, of course, illusory, then the Edgelands feel anything but. Revisit an Edgeland site you haven't been to for six months, and likely as not, there'll be a Victorian factory knocked down, a business park newly built, a section of waste ground cleared and landscaped, a pre-war warehouse abandoned and open to the elements. Such are the constantly shifting sands of Edgelands that any writing about these landscapes is a snapshot. There is no definitive description of the Edgelands of Swindon or Wolverhampton, only an attempt to celebrate and evoke them at one particular time. These are the kind of places we went to as part of our re- really glamorous, you know, staying in lots of premier inns in places like um, Swindon. Fascinating as well. I lived in Swindon for five years. It's very nice. There you go. <laughs> and there's one last bit from the introduction I'll read, which is the kind of... It, it, it rises to a crescendo of um, hyperbole and, and, and uh, polemicism. And all, so I'll just read that bit out. Um, you ready? <laughs> Somewhere in the hollows and spaces between our carefully managed wilderness areas and the creeping, flattening effects of global capitalism, there are still places where an overlooked England truly exists. Places where ruderals, familiar here since the last ice sheets retreated, have found a way to live with each successive wave of new arrivals. Places where the city's dirty secrets are laid bare and successive human utilities scar the earth or stand cheek by jowl with one another. Complicated, unexamined places that thrive on disregard. If we could only put aside our nostalgia for places we've never really known and see them afresh. I think I'll stop. Can I stop there? Is that allowed? Yeah, I think so. I I just, you can't go on too long, but I think no. stopping early is all right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's me. Sorry. <laughs> I'm also not sure that the time is uh, exchangeable, so if anyone else wants to take those minutes, just be warned. Um, I should add that after the um, three presentations, then uh, there will be some discussion between us, which I'm going to attempt to direct, and then there will be some time for you to ask questions as well um, of, of the panellists. So um, our second um, panellist today is um, Sarah Maitland. Sarah Maitland is the author of numerous works of fiction, including the Somerset Morn Award-winning Two, two of those already, isn't it? We've got one too. No, no, you. <laughs> um, da- winning Daughters of Jerusalem and several non-fiction books about religion. The Book of Silence was shortlisted for four prizes, the Orwell, the Saltire, the Scottish Arts Council Book Award and the Bristol Festival of Ideas Book Prize and has sold more than 30,000 copies. Born in 1950, she studied at Oxford University and currently tutors on the MA in Creative Writing for Lancaster University. Her latest book is Gossips in the Forest. 
Well, it's very interesting what Paul was saying, because I actually live beyond the Edgelands. I live in what people would see as being real country. Um, and as much as I live up a back more, um, a high more um, in southwest Scotland, um, about ten miles up a single track road. Um, but actually, many of the things that Paul is describing are just as true there. So that in the past six years that I've been living there, there have been tiny but very radical changes to the landscape. The trees are coming out now, the 1970s um, spruce plantations are being clear-felled. When it's first done, clear-fell looks so dreadful, it looks like a bombsite, and it's very, very unexpected in an area which kind of represents, at some level, um, rural bliss. It is quite strange to have this bombsite on the one hand and on the other have hen harriers on your bird table. Um, I was very, very pleased. There was only one hen harrier, to be honest. That was pretty classed. Um, uh, so that things like uh, um, radio masts, although we still have no mobile connection, um, a good example, and above all in southern upland Scotland, the turbines which very closely represent some of that Edgeland stuff. Um, I've written quite a lot about how I feel about the turbines, which has led me to believe I haven't a clue how I feel about the turbines. Uh, <laughs> people say that if you write about things, it clarifies your thoughts, but if you write about them intelligently, it may clarify the fact that you have no clarity. <laughs> but for the last maybe ten years, really... Um, I've been making a very steady move away from fiction and towards non-fiction um, and away from urbanisation towards rurality. And I've come to the conclusion, really, that I don't believe in nature anymore. I think it's quite a bogus concept. I think the idea of landscape is much better, much more useful to us, um, because nature implies that there's something out over there that we are relate to in some way and my entire experience both visual and um, actual is that that's not quite how it is first of all if that is what nature is there is no nature in Britain we've got no bits of land that haven't in one way or another um, engaged with and been affected by um, human dwelling there might be some bits of actual deep sea which that might conceivably be true, although I can't think quite where they'd be. North End of the Minch is probably being not very radically restructured, um, but it will be soon because they're going to put the offshore turbines there. Um, so this idea that there is somehow nature with which we come to engage um, from, as I say, a much more extreme, extremely natural point of view, I'm saying a bit what Paul says, what, if you don't know what you're seeing, it's very hard to see it. So landscape is a very, very interesting word because landscape is an art word. Originally, landscape did not mean what you see. It meant a picture of what you see. So using the word landscape to describe the hills outside your house is a bit like according all people portraits. You know, there are 16 portraits coming up my track um, <laughs> because a portrait is a picture of a person and a landscape was originally a picture of some land. So that if one thinks in terms of landscape rather than in terms of nature, one's thinking at that core point of our cultural engagement with it all, all along. Um, and quite recently I've discovered a wonderful new word which is oikophilia. Oikophilia means love of home. And, or homes... Uh, 
And I've become very interested in how people find themselves to be at home in their place. Sometimes it is, very often, it's the place they grew up, but sometimes it isn't. There's that very, very, I think, beautiful bit of uh, writing by John Bernstein, who suddenly discovered that his home was inside the uh, um, Arctic Circle at the very, very top of First Sweden. It's a very beautiful bit of writing. Um, but he, he'd never been there before. He arrived. It was home. And that was certainly what happened to me when I came to where I now live. I've been looking for somewhere to live for five years. And I drove up this road and... Um, I just came down again saying, I've got to live there. Nobody said, well, you can't, um, because there's no places to live up there but the world. So I think what I'm trying to do increasingly is to shift um, that understanding of place to something more suited to a fiction writer, instead of seeing place over there and me over here or anybody else over here, to see the two as being embedded with each other seems to me that that's what Kathleen Jamie wrote about in that deeply shocking um, essay about gut bacteria and was that nature. She, I don't know if people have read it, but she went in, uh, she formed a relationship in a post-mortem place and describes the interior of dead people's guts in the language of nature writing. I mean, an exemplary piece of writing. Well, almost everything she does is an exemplary piece. So my new book, just to just sort of give an example of what that's about, grows out of my conviction that place, or our relationships with place, don't just form private psyches, they form cultures. Why have all the known monotheisms arisen in deserts? Why is the only uh, seriously gloomy um, mythology where you're not quite sure the gods are up to the job happen in a place where you get six months of dark every winter? Um, and for me in this book the question is what are the common themes of these Teutonic fairy stories that come out of forests why do forests give people that kind of imaginative engagement which is so different from the Celtic imagination and as an absolute gift to me Marina Warner has just written a book about Persian fairy stories um, which is doing very much the same thing she's saying what is specific to these set of stories the universalists have done a really good job. We know what is common to all fairy stories. Now we have to move beyond that and say what is place-specific to fairy stories. So that's what I've been trying to think about. And for me that works very well because it's a way of engaging with nature that never separates it from culture. And I think the separating of nature, the pushing it over there, the particularly saying that it's very fragile and we'll completely ruin it if we go anywhere near it, um, and that we shouldn't feed blue tits on our bird tables because it's very bad for willow tits, which, by the way, it is. Um, <laughs> um, all, all those things, is, you know, the blue tits are doing rather well at the moment because they're very good at feeding on bird tables. Is that nature or is that an interference with nature? It's those kind of questions, questions of the imagination, that I'd like to have us move towards instead of that... Um, more old-style nature writing, where I go somewhere and I see it, and ideally what I see is how everybody until I arrive made a mess of it. Um, you know, first of all, imperialism made a mess of it, and then industrialisation made a mess of it, and then global warming made a mess of it, and it's all our fault, I and mean, we fucked ourselves. Um, I don't think that's any longer a useful way of engaging with um, the larger world in which we happen to be both culturally embedded. Well, thank you very much.
saying, there's some provocative thoughts there. You nature lovers in the audience. Um, our third um, presentation today is from Tristan Gooley, who's a writer, navigator and explorer. He's worked in travel most of his life, led expeditions on five continents and pioneered a renaissance in the very rare arts of natural navigation. Tristan is Tristram is, a, is the only living person to have both flown solo and sailed single-handedly across the Atlantic. He's a fellow of the Royal, Royal, Royal Geographical Society and the Royal Institute of Navigation. Didn't know there was such a thing. Royal Institute of Navigation, everyone should be, become members now. And vice chairman of the UK's largest independent travel company, Trail Finders. His books include The Natural Explorer and The Natural Navigator. Thanks, Tim. Uh, and now, as they say, for something completely different. <laughs> Is it possible to kill the lights? Yep. Thanks. Um, okay. There must be more than a million ways to view a landscape, uh, and in the 15 minutes I've been generously allotted, I'm not going to cover all of them. If we look at, at this rather restricted landscape, I'm going to touch on one, because it's my background, but then I want to talk about general approaches that, that build towards uh, our appreciation and our ability to write about the landscape. You'll notice there are puddles on the left-hand side of this track. As a natural navigator, I see that, I see the asymmetry, and I think, why are the puddles? The sun isn't reaching this side. The sun is in the south in the middle of the day. I'm walking west. That is one of more than a million ways of looking at that track. Another way is to think, why do we see water? Uh, and you'll all be familiar with geology to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, my home is the South Downs, where I took this picture. It's chalk. I don't see a lot of lakes. When I go to the Lake District a lot of slate, there is a lot of water. This is the beginner's guide to geology, but there is a reason to it. Um, the, the relationship between water and rocks uh, is so fundamental that I think when we get to the creative um, process, we think it's beneath us. It, it's too nuts and boltsy. Uh, but I, I'd, I'd like to take us back a little bit. This is a classic river valley. Can everybody see it? I don't know, there's much I can do. <laughs> a, few, a few nods there. Um, so we've got a V-shape, uh, and the, the river's carved this V-shape, and then we've got interlocking spurs. So if you're down the bottom of a river valley, you actually tend to get pretty poor views. Up here, we've got a great view. In glacier country, I took this picture in Wales, we've got these you know, stereotypical U-shapes. And you actually get wonderful views all the way down to the bottom of this valley. You get a very different experience as a walker as well. As you walk out of a, a glacial valley, it goes from horizontal to almost vertical. An entirely different experience from walking out of a river valley, which will have an impact on you physically if you're trying to appreciate one on foot. The reason I mention this is if we, if we think of some of our most famous landscape writers, if we think of the Lake Poets, um, Wordsworth, Coleridge and Company, particularly in academic circles, I think there is a, a tendency to skip past all of those fundamental building blocks, the, the physical geography. And people tend to focus on this idea these, these wonderful minds came together in a place that happened to be the Lake District. 
and I think we've slightly lost touch with the fact that uh, if it wasn't for the, the geology, uh, if it wasn't for the slates and the other impervious rocks, and if it wasn't for the fact that there were glaciers there to create the wonderful views, what we would have is the poets, not the lake poets. It's a, a simple and obvious point on one level, but I, I think largely overlooked these days. Let's look at some other, other ways we can look at this, this very simple landscape. Instead of looking at the very broadest brushes, what about if we, if we zoom right in and look at those puddles? When mud dries, it contracts, and as it contracts, it forms cracks. And this forms signature unique patterns. Whenever you see cracks around a, a mud puddle, you are looking at a unique landscape. The chances are you're probably the only person in the whole world who will ever notice that. So you don't have to travel to the other side of the world to explore. If you squint and look at this, this picture of drying mud, you might see a road map. Actually, the, the forces that, that create towns and allow us to relieve pressure as people drive through, through towns is analogous to the way mud dries. Bizarre, but true. Next time you're on a sandy beach, have a look at where the water hits the sand and then retreats, uh, and you'll find wonderful sculptures. Again, totally unique. You'll see tree roots, whole trees, fish scales, uh, orange peel, chevrons, all sorts of things going on. Uh, you will be the only person who's noticed it. When the next wave comes in and washes it away, it is gone. There's been a small renaissance in the idea of looking at, at patterns in the, in the sky. Uh, and I'm not going to dwell on that, but it's a nice way of... Actually, I'll, I'll mention one thing. Uh, all, of the, all of the early myths give more attention and attach more importance to the idea that the sky is half of the landscape. Every single one of them. Uh, we've become much, much more focused on the, on the land itself. Uh, but there is, there is much to appreciate in the other half of the landscape. But that, that brings me on to... We've talked about really physical um, aspects of landscape, uh, geography in a, in a broad sense. I'd now like to move on to think about the more ephemeral aspects, uh, the more transient ones. These are two photographs side by side of the same field. And... This crop growing here is flax or linseed. The time difference between the left-hand picture and the right-hand picture is two weeks. <laughs> so we've got a, a really fast, um, almost a revolution in colour taking place. Can you notice the pale green in this corner here? becomes the, the lilac against the green. As a natural navigator, these, these are things I, I think of as colour compasses. But however you look at that landscape, it's a pretty rapid change. Same field... This time, two hours difference. The flowers of the linseed are reacting minute by minute to the angle of the sun. I think landscape artists uh, and more recently landscape photographers have always appreciated these, these very um, uh, transient aspects of landscape because they are focusing on a moment. But I think writers have, um, have been a bit slow to this. I think writers like the idea of creating their own arc, their own story arc. Uh, which sits within a landscape which, if not entirely static, sort of behaves. It, it, it does what it's meant to in the background. Whereas we can learn a lot from people like Cezanne, who, who I believe painted the same view across the Mont Saint-Victoire over 60 times. I think one of the most unexplored and exciting areas is the urban landscape, particularly in this idea of change. If we look down from high on a, on a city, uh, we get to see what, what I like to call invisible snakes. 
the way people move from a station to a workplace, from a workplace to perhaps a park at lunchtime, and then back to a station. You will all, at some point, have seen those uh, fast-forwarded films. You see the people, as each train arrives, they, they filter out, and these snakes move off in different directions. As a natural navigator, I look at it in, um, in a practical sense, uh, as well as uh, a creative sense. If you're completely lost in a city, go against the flow of people in the early morning or with the flow of people in the late afternoon, and you will find a station. <laughs> <laughs> Having talked about the physical aspects of landscape very briefly uh, and the ephemeral ones, I now want to look at the subjective aspect of landscape. Uh, and as this, this very brief talk is going on, um, we, we're moving into the, the, the less and less well-explored areas uh, and, and the greater... The, the less well somewhere is explored, the greater the potential for, for new creativity, I believe. Uh, if you get up in the morning and you hear the sound of a pneumatic drill, or you get up in the morning and you hear the sound of birdsong, it will have a massive impact on you, um, perhaps consciously, uh, but certainly subconsciously. You will, you will have a... a a smaller desire to tune in to the things around you if you hear a road um, being drilled than if, than if you hear birdsong. And this isn't a comment on, on town versus country. This is just one of thousands of examples every day of how our filter, if you like, is being tweaked uh, without our agreement. Within this general area, hands up if you have more energy in the mornings than you do in the evenings. And hands up if you have more energy in the evenings than the mornings. A roughly 50-50 split. It's fairly typical. Um, the larks tend to tend to win normally by a, by a couple of percentage points. But um, we have what scientists call an individual chronotype. Uh, we we feel alert at certain times and drowsy at other times. Uh, my my dog Dreyfus, the schnauzer bottom right, you might be able to see there, displaying a particularly severe individual chronotype in front of that log fire. Um, <laughs> But we tweak these feelings, this, this roller coaster of energy with, with caffeine. I'm sure we've got many, many writers um, out of interest. Raise your hand if you're a writer. Yeah, a good, a, a, a good number of you. Um, how much fun would it be without this? Um, uh, cre credit to you if, you if you manage to write without any caffeine at all. But, but whether we're writing or whether we're reading, however we're um, building a relationship with the landscape, uh, it will be a different landscape... Um, with high blood sugar, caffeine, perhaps a pint of beer, a glass of wine inside us. Um, it will be a different landscape if it's at our most alert time or our most drowsy time, even if physically it hasn't changed. So we've got two roller coasters, roller coasters if you like, going on there. We've got the fact that, as we saw with the field of uh, linseed, minute by minute everything around us is changing. We can't see the same landscape twice. And as that's happening, inside we've got roller coasters going on as well. So there is a huge amount of change going on where not many people have credited there being any change at all. Okay, I'd like you to hold hands with the person next to you. If you're British, you'll find this very difficult. <laughs> I'm too British. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd, I'd now like you to, to stare, stare at the screen. Um, and when I say now, I want you to estimate 10 seconds. When you think 10 seconds is up, raise your hand if you've got a spare one or a foot if you haven't. Starting now. Okay, I think, okay, hands down, thank you. 
extremely scientific experiment. I'd like you to stare at this screen um, and raise your hand when you think 10 seconds have passed, starting now. Thank you, hands down. Um, thank you for being willing volunteers. It gets worse. Um, <laughs> uh, scientists of, of many different, many different flavours are, are uncovering extraordinary uh, facts about our relationship with the things we sense. Uh, colours being, being one of the most interesting ones, I think. Uh, we perceive time differently if we're surrounded by blue than if we're surrounded by red. Time appears to move more slowly if we're surrounded by red. We will squeeze an object 13.5%, not 13, not 14, 13.5% uh, more strongly if we're surrounded by red than if we're surrounded by blue. So you haven't all just fallen in love with each other there. That's a, <laughs> an automatic reaction. Uh, people, people perform less well in IQ tests um, it, after being shown the colour red than, than any other colour. But they perform better in physical contests and sports. So as your eyes move around this picture of spices, your perception of time all sorts of physiological and psychological um, events are going on within, inside, within you. Uh, your intelligence is actually changing as you move your eyes around it. Okay, for the next slide, uh, I want you to react as fast, as instinctively as possible. If you take more than a second, you'll have no fun at all. So when the slide changes, go as fast as you can. Try and be the first person to answer this question. What is the first colour you see? Okay, we got, we got not all of, all of the rainbow, but quite a few colours there, quite a few whites, uh, a few yellows, I heard a red, um, uh, <laughs> which is poss possibly somebody who's just had a cup of coffee, some chocolate, and a pint, pint of beer as well. Uh, what's interesting here, psychologists have now proved that we can never really see a, a colour um, in an object we recognise objectively twice. The second we, if we think of a shape we all recognise a tree and we're all very familiar with, our brain knows what colour to expect and it tries to shortcut the process. It effectively says to the other parts of the brain, don't worry for all the information coming in through the eyes, I recognise the shape, it's green, move on, use, use, that, use that thought power for something else. So if we notice anything that we think is, is novel in any way, uh, we have a responsibility uh, if we're interested in... in um, you know, writing about the landscape in particular, to, to pay that extra attention, because the next time we see it, it won't be the objective experience we perhaps hope it will be. Okay, I promise it will get worse. I want you to stare at this, this landscape um, for 15 seconds, and then I'm going to pick uh, one or two people from the audience at random to come up here and, and tell everybody about the things that, that strike them. So 15 seconds starting now. Anybody feeling a tiny bit of adrenaline, perhaps in the front two rows here? It went very, very quiet. I'm not going to call anybody up, don't worry. The point, the point there was that this landscape didn't change, and yet some of you, perhaps not all of you, um, would have paid it slightly more attention, the thought that you might have to get up here and stand in front of 100 people <laughs> and, and talk about it. 
so we've, we've looked at, very, very briefly, some of the physical aspects of a landscape. We've looked at some of the, the ephemeral uh, and transient aspects, and we've looked at some of the subjective psychological aspects. When, uh, this is Mont Blanc, as I'm sure some of you recognise, when Shelley first saw Mont Blanc, he, he described experiencing a sentiment of ecstatic wonder not unallied to madness. Um, only only a, a, a poet could, um, could make a double negative sound better than a, than a positive in that way. But I think we all, we all know what, what, what he's getting at here. Um, I think when all of these pieces come together, and it's not a scientific process, and, that, and that's a wonderful thing. I love science, but there must be some mystery. But really, in, in my book, The Natural Explorer, what, what I'm really doing is trying to develop um, some of these ideas uh, and, and build them to the point where we can increase the likelihood that we experience that, if not euphoria, then that hint of wonder, um, a sense of awe. Because I think this is what is, is so essential for the maximum appreciation of any landscape and in turn giving ourselves the best possible chance of, of writing about landscapes. Um, so this is a book uh, very much written for people who who enjoy reading about and enjoy writing about landscapes. Thanks very much. Right, um, thank you for those wonderful presentations of your work. I, I'm going to um, attempt to direct some questions which actually aren't uh, precise questions of individual talks or their individual books, but more questions that... Um, might lead to discussion between us. We'll do this for a little while, then I'll open it up to you. If you've got things you want to write down to ask um, uh, of us, or particularly the presenters, then, then do that. So um, my first question really comes from, my first point really comes from the last presentation, just in, in The Natural Explorer, which I was um, carrying around with me the last week. Um, and, and sort of wishing I'd been given it when I was 12, uh, <laughs> or possibly 16, I don't know, it's depending on which chapter, um, in order to sort of enthuse me about geography. I managed to get past that anyway and become a geographer, but um, it's, an, it's an amazing uh, experience. Um, the central sort of metaphor in it is exploration. No, it's not really a metaphor at all, it's actually what you're doing. <laughs> um, but, um, but, uh, um, but, but the reason it's metaphorical is because, is because it makes us think about other, other explorers, so it's sort of strange kind of metaphor. And it made me think about the history of exploration, you know, exploration being tied to my discipline, which is geography and, 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 and the kind of dark past of, uh, of the colonial imagination in, in relation to exploration. So I'm wondering um, about that and about how that term, exploration, is, 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 is something that you can all res sort of resonate with all of you in the way that you think about whether woodlands or edgelands or um, obviously it works for you. <laughs> um, think about that, that term a bit and if it's an appropriate one or if it's one that you think you, you um, adhere to. Who wants to start? Yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll go for it. Um, I, in the, I've given a lot of thought to what makes an explorer and in the book, um, The Natural Explorer, I try to set it out and this is just, just my take on it. It's not in any way necessarily definitive, although that's the aim of the book, is to try and make it definitive. For me, an explorer is somebody who makes a discovery and communicates this discovery to other people. Mm. And that doesn't have to be 12,000 miles away. It doesn't have to be somewhere cold. It doesn't have to be a desert. Um, if you've made a journey here today um, and hopefully, you know, you know learned something, not, not necessarily from, from my presentation, but something today in this, in this room, um, and, and you share that with somebody, I think that, you know, creeps in at the edge of the definition of an explorer. Equally, if you travel, you know, a few thousand miles away and, and head into a, into a jungle uh, and, and discover some 
you know, plant or animal that's unknown to science, that certainly qualifies as well. So it's a broad spectrum, but, but I, that, that's my take. Sarah? Well, I think this isn't exactly directly answering the question, but it is, in my mind, related to the question. It's the astonishing difficulty of seeing things when you don't know what it is you're seeing. Um, birds are a very good example of this. For four years I lived where I lived, I never saw any field fairs in the winter. Um, I did see some rather surprisingly large starlings, but... Uh, <laughs> and then one day I was walking along a road with somebody who said, oh, look, the field fairs are back. Um, and when I was told I was seeing field fairs, I could instantly see them, and I have seen them ever since. That's the real point about it, that I can now see them. And that happens repeatedly. So I think, in a way, the, the bit of being an explorer that you've described, you have to bring it back and communicate it to people. Maybe pioneer is the word that I prefer. You open up seeing for others. I think that has to be part of, of being the explorer, that the new worlds may be just round the corner, or they may be thousands of miles away, but they're not a lot of use if other people aren't in some way enabled to go there. Then they could go there in the imagination or through narrative or something. So for me, an explorer who fails to communicate. It's the same question as to whether or not if you fail to come down from a mountain, you've gone up, you can fairly be said to have gone up it. <laughs> being the first person to climb X actually means being the first person to climb X and come back down again. It does not count. If you were, when last seen, you were going strongly for the summit. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not enough. And I think that's really interesting here you say that communication bit deepening of information, making of maps. There's no point in having a map if nobody wants to go there. Uh, I th- yeah, I, th- I think writing is, is, is an act of exploration and discovery, or, or it, it often should be. Um, so I, I go back to almost first principles, things like Robert Frost saying, you know, tears in the writing, or tears and laughter in the writing. What you do, what you find out, if the writing is an act of discovery, then something of that excitement will be transmitted to any reader out there, you know, it, it almost gives it off like a like a scent. Um, <laughs> and I, I love the idea of of of, of expl- as it's as patently obvious, you know, places closer to home rather than places which are a long way away. It's interesting though when Michael and me were writing Edgelands, um, and something something you said really really kind of resonated with me. We discovered, of course, that lots of people have been going to these spaces, these places, anyway. And often um, with these kind of in between air, things between the urban and the rural, it's been the visual artists, and the visual artists have been the pioneer species of the Edgelands, if you like. They've, they've got in there a long time, I think, before, before writers have. And we, we hope that Edgeland would be a generous book as well and would, would, would tell us about who these uh, photographers and, and painters are and were, you know. So, um, and, and exploring, I, don't, I think there was some vague thing early on when I was first, when I was first moved to them, we were talking about doing this that we didn't want to kind of frame ourselves as kind of, with this kind of, you know, I'll use that word, intrepid. Yes. You know, we didn't want to frame ourselves in a landscape kind of beaten apart and um, dispatches are sent back for, for you know, we, we didn't really want to do that. I rather like the idea of you and Michael being tintin all over no, the that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> but we ended, we, ended, we, ended up getting, we ended up getting to lots of ridiculous situations where... Um, Looking for evidence of den building, for example. Uh, did we live in? Uh, did I live through a golden age of den building and the children not build dens? 
anymore. So we found ourselves kind of poking around, looking for evidence of den building. So in, in a funny kind of way, we were almost the model of the kind of... Uh, when I was reading the book, I actually thought, you know, the pioneer species of the explorer were the children. Mm. A lot of the spaces you're talking about made me think of my childhood, and sort of, um, you know, playing around on building sites, or, or digging ditches. Ditches seem to be a popular thing. When I was Stick of the dump. Stick of the dump, kind of, yeah, exactly. You know, you've got this sort of brilliant the, the quarry, or quarry is this place where you go and mm. hang out. And so there's something about, um, you know, the kind of innocent exploration of children that uh, is in that. It's the first space as well away from the domestic, or it was, certainly was for me, I think it was for lots of children. There was this kind of, the houses stopped there, there was this kind of place over there that didn't really tie in with an idea of the countryside, mm-hmm. like you heard from my introduction, and it's the first space away from the adult world. Yeah. And what do you do? You start nesting, you start building the den, you form all kinds of mm-hmm. allegiances there. It's really important, actually. There's a very strong passage in your book, I think, Sarah, about the, de- the perceived demise of, of these spaces for childhood. It worries me a lot. It worries me. I, would, I was certainly grew up in a more rural version of that, but that we were extremely... Uh, my mother had an enormous handbell, and what marked the limit of our permitted territory, we're talking about when we were little, was be within sound of the bell. Mm. Okay. But, of course, you didn't know whether you were in sound of the bell. <laughs> <laughs> by, the very, by the very nature of the activity, until you were out of sound of the bell, you didn't know... So it was a wonderful, and I mean, they were certainly intelligent enough parents to realise that, that idea that you should be kind of on the boundaries of what they were able to cope with, um, I think was very, very liberating for us. We were sort of helped by being a very large watch of children, um, but it wasn't just that. It was, um, and it doesn't very much worry me since the actual um, danger to children from strangers it's exactly the same, exactly the same as it was when I was five. I'm scribbling down your, your memory of the bell, which I love, but also the collective noun wodge of children. <laughs> <laughs> if you're one of six, yeah. you are. <laughs> no, I mean, all I'm saying is I think that we must look really very carefully at why it is we're depriving children from... If, if there's been a decline in den-making, mm. um, it actually matters. Yeah. And so really... And because I honestly don't believe a virtual den... Um, however good the programme is it's going to do quite the same thing I think virtual dens are cool as well by the way I'm not anti-computering here but I think that the actual physical getting on unsupervised in, in gossip I went for a walk in Epping Forest with Rob McFarlane um, and it was a lot of fun we had a really good day but it was not really forest anymore it's kind of edging towards park except we walked into this extraordinary clearing and there was a swing that was dropped more than 30 feet and it was clearly not a grown-up it certainly was not a health and safety swing (laughs) and we had a lot of thought about how did any kid get it up and concluded that they must have had a bow and arrow they must have shot a lead thread over that branch to hang it from. And like your dens, you suddenly think, they're still doing it, goody, goody, goody. <laughs> <laughs> Off to join the Boy Scouts or something. Um, but, yeah, it worries me that uh, we're going to lose that. And because, to go back to what I was saying before, we are losing the vocabulary for it, that the, uh, the new Oxford Junior Dictionary does not think the modern child needs the word conquer or blackberry or pixie. So they're losing both magic and... They've got pixel, <laughs> and they certainly haven't well. got fewer words, but there's a great stripping out of the words to describe wildness, and I think that's something we'd need to watch, actually. Because if you don't know what you're seeing... 
I got, I got invited to, uh, to say some things about a book that's coming out in America fairly shortly, um, and you'll love the title. I don't know about the book itself. Um, uh, called Let Them Be Eaten by Bears. <laughs> <laughs> I think eating, by be- eating children by bears has a whole lot of good, th- good things about it, separate from nature and nurture. See, this tells its own story. We found a, a leaflet, which was published by the Forestry Commission in 2006, and this, it's a booklet, a pamphlet, called Rope Swings, Dens, Tree Houses and Fires, a risk-based approach for managers facilitating <laughs> self-built structures and activities in woodland setting. Yeah. Let the party begin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure she's been in this situation. I, I'm leading a, a walk in an um, outdoors museum in, in three or four months, and I've been sent five pages of form for a risk appraisal for this half-hour walk. It's, uh, yeah. I went to do a, a, a course on rough camping because, because of the new access laws in Scotland. You can, in fact, legally just go and camp anywhere you like, but there are some complications. I thought it would be rather fun to go on a course for it. And in order to go on a course of rough camping, we had to fill in eight pages of uh, health and safety, including the fact that we couldn't go rough camping anywhere that was out of reach of mobile phones. Because, uh, you know, if anything happened to any of us, it would be very dangerous. But since there is no mobile phone coverage in the whole of the Galloway Forest, the whole thing is a sort of non-starter. Um, but it's, that's the same. That's a great quote. Really good. Um, so, just to move the conversation on a bit, um, my next sort of uh, discussion point rather than question, I think, is, is the role of the urban in, um, in writing, environmental writing, whatever you want to call it, um, I used a word that I'm not going to repeat uh, in the green room that Sarah told me not to say in relation to uh, environmental writing that is, that is um, uh, proliferating. Proliferating is good. Quite a rate recently, um, and, um, for good, and a, a good thing, I think, entirely. Um, let's call it the renaissance of, um, of place writing. Um, what, he actually said, what he actually said was glut. <laughs> I felt that since I'm going to sell a book on it, I didn't want blood. <laughs> <laughs> I was behaving myself there. So, so, so this renaissance of, of, of place writing, a lot of it has been involving some form of, of nature, right? So, so the, the rediscovery, particularly in Britain, of Britain's natural her- heritage and natural world. And I'm wondering, um, outside of... Uh, another word I wasn't supposed to say, but now I will say it, because otherwise Paul will say it anyway. Um, <laughs> outside of psychogeography... <laughs> Um, uh, Ian Sinclair and some of the people writing around, sort of walking around London and doing their thing. Um, you know, there's heavy emphasis on the rural or on, on versions of nature. And I wonder what, what wrong use, what place do you think the, the urban has in this kind of, um, this, this sort of creative engagement with the world? Or maybe personally, I know, obviously with Paul, um, it is the edge of the urban that you're writing about. Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a place, it's a very accidental book edgings and a very accidental project, and it's just the first landscape I knew, you know, um, this kind of betwixt and between, neither here nor there kind of space. Um, it's the place I knew, and then I forgot about it in, in all kinds of interesting ways, and then went back to it. I went back to it because I was asked to write something about where I grew up for uh, Granta magazine, and I, I went there with a... It turned out a novelist called Niall Griffiths had grown up in the next street, and I'd never, we'd never known each other then. And we met in a pub in Liverpool and couldn't, you know, it was kind of, wow, let's go back. Went back. I thought he was from Aberystwyth. Yeah, he lives in Aberystwyth <laughs> now, but he, he, grew, he grew up in Liverpool. He, he also lived in Australia when, when he was a, a child. Anyway, we, 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 um, we um, went back there, we wrote this thing, and the thing that interested me most was just going back to that place properly and really poking about and having a look and thinking about mm-hmm. it. 
And then when I talk, often talk to Michael over the years about, about these sort of in-between spaces, um, that, what, what I'm trying to say is there just wasn't any sense of project in the sense that let's do something that's very edgy and urban and, and kind of confounds a kind of sense of, you know, this new nature, right? And it, it just wasn't like that. I just, I just think you can explore these kinds of spaces uh, and wilderness, you can find wilderness, you can find wilderness kind of corridors or mosaics of wilderness all over the place. That, that you have, you have, I had this strange mental model when I first started writing Edgings that there, was, there are these cities and then there are almost blast zones, um, like a rings of destruction, almost like the tintinibulation of your bell, yeah. the edges of sound, where, where it gets slightly more, and then you reach an edge. And then you cross it, and you, it's almost like crossing an isogloss, you know, from one axis <laughs> to another. And then you're in another space. But it absolutely isn't like that. It's, it will not be contained in that way. It's far more unpredictable and messy. Um, and it's more, mosaic is a better word, actually. I feel like pressing some buttons now. So, I mean, I think that the, the, your reaction... I haven't even said the word psychogeography in the room before we came in, but, when I, but I was told not to mention it, but now I feel like I need to talk about it. Oh. So, um, <laughs> what I'm interested in is, 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 is it seems, urban writing seems to get that label, or rural writing doesn't, mostly doesn't get that label, and I wonder what your, what, what's your strong reaction against it? Why don't you like that term? Uh, it, uh, oh, you bastard. <laughs> it's... Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the sort of thing that uh, geography academics say to you, isn't it? Yeah, That's yeah. <laughs> it's just I, I don't. I don't. It's a category, and it's it's a it, it, it's strangely limiting, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious of it. So, um, and also we mention it maybe just once or twice um, in the book. Are they the things that that people immediately kind of yeah. home in on? You know, it's like that joke about you, you know. Um, the guy gets off a boat in, a, in a, a, one of the Scottish islands somewhere and he says, I built all of these houses. Do they call me Angus the house builder? No, they don't. I built that dry stone wall. Do they call me Angus the wall builder? No, they don't. I fuck one sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just, just a tiny bit... <laughs> Sorry. But you asked. <laughs> but I think the psychogeography of sheep fucking would be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a, a book that hasn't been, uh, is not part of so far a glut. <laughs> I think you should want to pitch, wouldn't it? Mm. Do, you, do you want to carry on the. the, the <laughs> I think you want to go on from there. I mean, the urban, in, in, a lot of your, your walks you take in, in forests are actually quite close to cities. Right? I, in some of them are in cities. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, great search for the Great North Wood, which is used to cover almost the whole of South London. I think what I want to say is, I think writers are getting unfairly blamed for this. We know that all publishers, and particularly all publicity persons, live in the middle of London and think that nature is exotic. If they moved to Carlisle for their office, they would not only have more money to pay me, they would think, I know what we need, we need some urban exploration. Um, for people who decide what get, books get written aren't us. It's damn. That's why a glut is a good thing if you haven't been writing in that glut, and a very bad thing if you haven't been writing something else. Uh, and I think, I mean, I think it is extraordinarily sad how little there is about what I suppose you might want to call urban landscape or urban nature. I would recommend to everybody Esther Wolfe's new book, mm. where I think she's very boldly trying to turn Aberdeen into a wildlife park. Um, <laughs> With, you know, real zeal. It's very, very good, both help by the fact she writes very well, of course, but it is a serious attempt to do it. And uh, um, I think it's very important to be done, but I do think there's a problem. I once wrote a book, um, a 
book of short stories, actually, and was trying to sell it. And the publisher was saying, I really, really love this book, Sarah, but I can't publish it because readers like to buy books they can identify with. And I said, but all the characters in this story are 50-year-old women who are rather well-educated, interested in God, and live in the country. What is the profile of book buyers? (laughs) (laughs) Almost precisely that. So she didn't mean what the readers can't identify with. She meant what she couldn't identify with. And I do have to say, the shoes she was wearing at the time would have made a rural exploration difficult. So of course she wanted me to do it for... But I mean, I'm sorry, at the serious level, this is a business with living on it as well as being an inspiration and important emotional things. You cannot write a book unless you're lucky and have an academic... If somebody won't buy the book, you cannot, therefore, write a book that nobody wants to buy. Um, or you can't if you haven't paid your mortgage yet. <laughs> yeah, he's, but he's... He poured in, I'm not saying yes or no, also has a full-time job as an academic, which I'm sure reduces the number of books he can write or poems he can write. Yeah. I'm just trying to say that it isn't just that we're all skiving off, dealing with the urban. I would add to that that the most interesting books are the ones that, that sit right at the edge of what publishers dare. To, yeah, I agree with you, but it's what the publishers dare. Yeah. All the writers I know dare like yeah. mad. Give them an inch, they take a mile. If an idea goes to six publishers, the most interesting books are the ones that are turned down by five, aren't they? Well, it depends which order you send them in, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know exactly what you mean. Yes, yeah. but it's hard to persuade publishers of that. Yeah. Sort of following on from some of the discussion we've just been having and, and inverting the urban, if you like, the other, the other space that um, has been written about um, for you know, several hundred years particularly in North America, but to some degree here, is the space of the wilderness. The wilderness is this space that uh, is somewhere different from us, and I think you were touching on this in the way you were talking about nature. And I wonder where you think wilderness is now, particularly in Britain. Where where is the wild? And and, uh, Kathleen Jamie's essay made me think about this question, actually. Kathleen Jamie has this essay where the wild is in your gut. And um, and there's there's an amazing essay... uh, from a Canadian writer about how the wild is when you know there's shit on the carpet or when the, your, your tools start to break down in the garage and, and, and that's where the wild is and, and you can't do anything about it the wild is there, it's not in Yellowstone so I mean, I've answered my own question I shouldn't do that but, um. <laughs> it, it does tie in very nicely with, with what Sarah was saying there because it happens to have been a very commercial space for the last few years you know Robert McFarlane and others have, have um, you know, brought it, brought it to that place uh, very successfully. Uh, but I, I think I subscribe to the philosophy. Was it Thoreau who said, uh, y- "You import wildness to a place; it, it isn't, it isn't an objective um, quality." Uh, but I, I, all of these things go in cycles. You know, we, we've talked about the, the urban space and, mm. and whether it's because of the publishers or, or other reasons that that is quite a dreadful expression now, and it will cycle out of that. And I think that looking for a positive in all of this, um, we've pretty much done every category in inverted commas over the last sort of couple of decades, and therefore, you know, it might be that we're reaching a point now where there isn't, it's not going to be trend-driven. You know, the, the, the cities, you know, are, you know, part of it. The wilderness is, is part of it. And so it, it should be the originality, in the sense of the wilderness that we bring to it, um, it becomes the more the more important thing. Uh, it's a bit it's a bit cliched now to, to say that you know your back garden is is this you know wild place if you want it to be. But 
Uh, that's the job of the writer. You know, I'd, all of us, I'm sure, would much rather read a, a, a book about a, a familiar place written by a, a fantastic writer than the most remote spot on earth written by a, an average writer. Um, it does make me wonder a bit, uh, I mean, just to sort of close this discussion, the suggestion, why at a particular time, we don't, we don't really know, I suppose, why at a particular time, say, I don't know, within the last decade, this um, phenomena of, of, of creative non-fiction books about landscape uh, has become as prolific as it has. I mean, it, it, it wasn't, I mean, if it was difficult for publishers to make that decision, Ten years ago, it doesn't seem less difficult now. So why? What, what was the shift? What happened? Why is why is there suddenly an interest in reading about wild Britain or trees or swimming in the wild or forests or edgelands or, or or the psychogeography of East London? Can I give that a go? Mm. I think I think it's actually driven by the green movement. I think that we have become aware of how perilous it is, how we might lose it, and how what it is we would be losing. <coughs> And I think there is actually a genuine new kind of caring, if that's the right word for it. Oliver Rackham, um, the tree historian, says in 1975 he did not believe there would be a stand of old wood in the whole of Britain. He thought that nobody cared. And he says, no, and he said, I was wrong. Something happened. And he thinks, and it sounds plausible to me, that... that uh, um, awareness of global warming, the awareness of loss or the danger of loss has made people pay better attention and I think that's a positive way of looking at it both wilderness out there thousands of miles away which should be protected but also what we have still got here, what sorts of mosses are growing in the gaps between your paving stones <laughs> because that may be all you're going to have you better find out about it so I think it's partly a sad, a sorrow driven, a loss driven agenda what? I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that, but I think um, economics plays a huge part as well. And I think the, you know, the 2007, um, you know, that dreadful, dreadful time, and we're all guilty of it in, in different ways, where you just couldn't go anywhere. You could not get through one hour without somebody mentioning a property price within earshot. It was a really <laughs> horrible time. Um, and I think my, my feeling is that it's part of this, this grand experiment of what we find satisfying and, and rewarding in, in life. And, and we tried talking about property prices and all sorts of other things for a while and realised that actually that doesn't... That doesn't. And I, th I think the, the most recent upsurge in interest in this area is a reflection of the fact that we've realised that um, money can, can bring certain things, but it, it, can't, it can't bring that deeper sense of um, um, fulfilment. When Book of Silence was published first, which was in 08, um, I and my publishers were rather surprised how successful it was. It sold very well, very fast. Um, and we were all a bit baffled by that. Um, not very flattering when your publisher reveals that they didn't think they'd sell any <laughs> Never mind that, since they were, there wasn't a problem. I was coming out of doing a reading with my then publicity person. And she said to me, I'm a silver lining person, Sarah. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I have just discovered the silver lining to the economic meltdown. And I said, what's that? She said, it's the sales of these book, this book. This book, we could not have timed it better. Um, to suddenly start talking about small and silence and stuff at that, at that second half of 2008. I think that backs up what you're saying very, very strongly. This brings me to my last point before we open it up. And that is, do, do you think that um, within this green-inspired or otherwise um, writing tradition that you know, obviously has deep roots but is flourishing at the moment. Um, the, there is a danger that it's always 
uh, elegiac, sort of romantic, elegiac, loss-based kind of writing rather than present and future-based writing? Well, it's, it's one of the big safe themes, home and going home and where home is. Is it somewhere in the past that we've come from? Is it where, we, it's where our stuff is now, where we lay our head? Or is it waiting somewhere in the future to be kind of gained, you know, discovered? Um, and it all, somewhere in the background, this is always, a, this is always there, I think. I, I love that word, oikophilia. Oikophilia. Oikophilia, Oik it's home. great. Yeah. Oikophilia, yeah. And it reminded me of, of, of that other great writer of home who plays John Clare, who was an oik in both senses. <laughs> yep, very good, very um, good. And I, I, I love I had him on my notes, yeah, I just Yeah, I love Clare, I love his poetry, and um, lots of his stuff is, 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 is about loss, it's about a home that's, that he can't go... And it's not, it's not just that he ended up in an asylum, although that's tragic and awful, and his, his, his biography is unbearable, you know, it's not for the faint-hearted at all, but it's, it's, more, it's more that loss of, um, of home. One minute he's, he grows up in, in a culture that doesn't value books and bookishness and reading, and so he, he goes down to London and is paraded in the drawing rooms of the Regency in this huge overcoat, almost like a suit of armour, doesn't fit in there. And so he's, he's, this is a appalling double bind, you know, he's, he's absolutely homeless. And, and all his, his best work, I think, issues from that, not being at home or able to kind of dwell anywhere. But Paul, it does seem to me that part of that not being at home was the, mm. uh, the clearances and the fencings. Mm. The actual landscape that seems what? to have been his security simply disappeared. He saw it disappear. So he saw it, you know... Um, those field trees cut down, those fences put up, the loss of common land so mm. that the wild is pushed out to the edge of the desert. Mm. I mean, you know, it was a, the timing of that. Yeah, I mean, poor bastard is really mm. one's mm. He saw people in the woods, you know, um, with the other lights, are they called, the things yeah. that, yeah. Um, and they were, they, were, they were, there was a railway boom, I think, <sighs> in the 20s, 1820s, and they were trying, they were thinking of a line from, I can't remember where from and to, but they were prospecting, if you like, for a rail line. It reminded me of this high-speed um, thing that everybody's talking about now. John Clare caught these guys in the woods, and it's in his, in his journal, and asked them what they were doing. Just one more little kind of um, so rent. So from, from what you're saying, it sounds to me like, you know, you embrace loss, that's all right to write about. You don't feel that's well, it sounded to me like your question is, is elegiac, is that new word? You know, it's, 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 uh, that's somehow a bad thing, but I think homesickness and nos you know, nostalgia gets a terribly bad time, but what does it mean? You know, it's not what it used to be. Well, no. Anyway, the, only way, the only way you could write it into the future would be with a religious discourse, which is not necessarily very well received mm -hmm. at present. Yeah. yeah the forward-looking sense of place, the sense of going home, I think would be very hard mm. to do without some kind of religious framework. Oh, you can have a kind of, you know, utopian socialist framework if you wanted to, or... Not a, a science fiction, you can have a science, science fiction framework. one, but people don't move... In genre terms, people don't move through nature to the future in your standard sci-fi book. Of course, it could be done. I should look <laughs> on it as a challenge, Tim, but... Um, <laughs> it's not a very lightly drive. Right. The future is kind of stabilised, I think, around issues of faith, which we probably don't want to go into now, but I think it's really important to mark up. Right. That, that, future landscape has got to be the landscape of heaven at one level. Right, unless you want to add anything, I think I'll open it up to... I'll, I'll, I'll round off just just because it applies to everything that we've <laughs> talked about. and I, I don't think that there should be any sort of rule sets providing writing, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, um, whether it's purple prose or, or, or grittier. Um, 
it should either genuinely um, enlighten us about place or about ourselves, about the human condition. Um, going back to that word you mentioned before, the worst psychogeographical writing falls in between. You learn nothing about the place and you learn nothing <laughs> about what, what it feels like to be either the writer or the reader. You're not going to name names? No. no, you can guess. I will. Um. <laughs> no, no, I won't, I won't, I won't. I won't. That was right, a so, Shorten, um, if you want to ask particular questions of particular people or general questions that they can discuss, that would be great. I have one right in the middle that's getting my attention. There we go. And there's a microphone coming to you, so if you can just wait until that arrives. I'll stand up so I can see who's got their hands up. Hi, uh, I just wanted to ask a question about the relationship between landscape and physical landscape within ourselves and the mirror, you know, when we're, uh, how we mirror the landscape that we inhabit and embody within ourselves with the one around us. I mean, we know that when we go for a walk, our imagination unfolds, we sense, we feel different things, we unfold different things, and that's quite often in relation to the kind of boundaries and contours of the particular landscape that we're in. So in relation to the rise in the last 10 years of landscape writing, do you think there's a link in a craving there with, I mean, so many people inhabiting a landscape every day, which is essentially a computer screen? Um, um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of jobs now basically are centred around computer screens or inhabit a very different physical landscape. I mean, even trading pits were a different thing 20 years ago. Is, is there something people think that their feelers may be lacking or craving there? So, so, so if, you, if you can hear that, um, the, the question is about um, the relationship between um, the contemporary uh, landscape writing and perhaps a lack of um, exposure to the world outside through going for a walk or something like that, as people even more interiorised, is that? Not so much... Uh, <laughs> I just say, and that most encounters with outside are leisure encounters. That your work encounter is mostly inside and with your computer screen. So that being in nature is a leisure activity, as opposed to say my neighbours still where it is brutally outside. And we laugh because every afternoon I go out for a walk and every afternoon about half past four if I meet Neil, he's like, I think it's going to rain, I can get in half an hour early. Um, so I think that, that our relationship's been changed not only by the difference of working. I mean, our hill farmers are still out there, you know, on these enormous, very rough, I mean, their lives have been immensely helped by the quad bikes. But it's still, they're out there all the time. The last thing they want to do is go for a leisure walk. <laughs> um, let's go to the gym and do some exercise. It's not very relevant when you're um, lambing in, in minus five degrees and your lambs are dying. Um, so I think that we have changed our relationship, or the re people who read have changed their relationship, with both with the places where they work and with how they encounter the outside, as we talk about the world, I think. think. Yes, I mean, I, I think there's a temptation to think that it's a sort of um, soft, utopian idea that everybody should have fresh air and it's nice and this sort of thing. But actually, some of the most interesting research is, is, is showing some very hard edges in this area in the sense that people who can... Um, some research for, for a book I'm writing at the moment uncovered... Um, people who can see a tree out of a hospital window will on average leave hospital one day earlier than people who can see a brick wall. Um, and there was a study done in, I believe it was Sweden, but I'd have to double-check, 
of a, a psychiatric ward, and they found over a very long period, a very thorough study, that the art that they put up on the walls to improve the lives uh, of the, uh, the inpatients was quite often damaged, but it was only, over a long period, it was only ever abstract images that were damaged. Pictures of landscapes were never, never harmed at all. So I think it's, it, goes, it goes pretty deep. One final thing I'll say is, um, the, when research is done in terms of the, the general human appreciation of what makes a pleasant landscape, what gives us good feelings, the, if there is a consensus, and it's rather nice that there isn't a perfect one, it tends towards what would have been our earliest site surveys for a safe place to settle. So raised land where you've got a view of some water, um, savannah type features. Uh, so I think some of this is hardwired and, and general human experiences. If you go against things that are hardwired psychologically too hard and for too long, a lot of people get very unhappy. So um, I think it's, it's important. Yeah. Do you have anything? Poetry, well, poetry, you know, and so, so my thing would be... Um, it's sh- the shape of a poem has got something to do with it comes from us comes from a body and a body's in contact with the with, with, with the earth with the world um, so a five beat line and the, the breath you know, it's conditioned by by us and by our we so Wordsworth wrote a, a certain kind of line because he walked up and down on that gravel and Coleridge wrote it because he was kind of jumping about all over the place. it wasn't just German philosophy it was it was, <laughs> it was this it was the way they moved across the earth that, that made their line different I think so you, this is the relationship between how we move through the world and a poem on a page. I, I mean, that's, you know, poets have been banging on about that for ages. So. One of the things that um, I came across recently in a, on a, a, a website for US property, I'm afraid to say, um, <laughs> there's a, um, they have a thing called a walk, a walk index for houses, if you want to buy a house. And of course, the people supposedly using this screen are all going to be um, you know, very privileged people that want walkability in their neighbourhood. And then someone had written a thing saying, if you, wanted, um, you know, if you want a neighbourhood with walkability, live where poor people live. <laughs> if they don't have public transport, they don't have, you know, so, you know they walk all the time, and that's what they do. And it reminds me of the hill farm with a different way. So, another question. Yes. I'll come to you next. We've had a, a really varied, diverse conversation about um, landscape in writing. So, my question is, what about a landscape of a text? Because text has structure, and it, there's places in text. So how do, you, how do you experience a freedom in that, or not as the case may be? Especially with publishing demands. I think that's what Paul was just saying. Question to me. So the question is about if, the land, if there's a landscape in the text as well as a landscape outside the text, and the ways you explore that. Yeah, just to, so I can go bigger on what I was just saying. I suppose it's, it's the shape of a of a poem on a page is a, is a is a shape that you're exploring and constantly negotiating with. So it's like you're moving over rough ground, if you like. I mean, I, I think when I'm writing of a poem as a very physical thing and almost a space. So is this sounding unbearably wanky? I can't. I'm really no, sorry. No, no, it really doesn't. No, it really doesn't. Paul, just go on. I'm with you. I'm with you. This is the yeah. secret that isn't. <laughs> This is the secret that isn't a secret about writing. You know, it, it's you, you kind of got to get right inside the shape of it. Oh, and by the way, nobody, or nobody I know writes when they're sitting down. Well, you do it at some point, but they don't begin there. You know, a poem begins when you're moving, when you're doing something. When you, sh- the, the best ones, I always think, are when you're supposed to be doing something else, <laughs> um, and then you're able to kind of keep a track of that. Um, so what's a, then what's appearing in front of you is a, is a little shape and a little journey, and it does have a landscape. And whether that's form as in 
traditional form, you know, sonnets, haiku, all, all the rest of it, or it's doing some, something um, different. It's making a shape on a page that you've got to be absolutely alert to while it's emergent. So that with a, I'm just talking, this is the poetry thing, I don't the guys are saying. Sorry, yeah. good move, good move. <laughs> but I don't like the word text. Um, can I just say that? I don't know why I don't like that. Like psychogeography text. Okay. It's, uh, um, I'll just so put that out there. Psychogeography and text. There, there you go, right, ban those words. words. Yeah. I think the text is useful in holding together different sorts of writing. So, you know, poetry and prose and stuff, what they've got in common is that they're texts. Mm. And if you could see it that way, I think it's quite a useful word in a mixed media conversation. <laughs> um, I don't like mixed media much either. So, do you feel like in fiction and non fiction forms that this, this is a question that makes oh, yeah, right, sense? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's that great um, line at the beginning of uh, Alice in Wonderland where her sister's reading the book and she kind of peers over her shoulder and she says, what on earth is the point of a book with no conversations and no pictures? Um, and falls asleep and goes into the world of the imagination. What's really interesting about that is she doesn't read any of the book, so she can visually see that there are no conversations. It's in solid paragraphs. Mm. And that insetting, I think, and the introduction of dialogue and why it pleases people so much is it allows readers into the text in a very intimate way and there is something quite dead about reading books where people don't indent. I hate indenting myself and I never do it on my rough draft but I always do when it's printed because I think it allows readers to enter in and share the text with you. I really believe that. So in that sense of the, the texture isn't as refined if that's a fair word as it is in the poem. I think it's there all the time mm -hmm. certainly with narrative, with prose fiction you're negotiating a map yeah. through territory um, and you know, the exact degree to which you choose to mislead your readers <laughs> send them off on uh, red herring trails is a kind of what has to be judged quite carefully exactly as it would be if you bought a map that was just wrong <laughs> it's the pub this way and the pub wasn't you'd be pissed off <laughs> <laughs> Just, I mean, in your book you have these sort of little bits in italics where you're on a walk that's quite a short walk for the whole book mm -hmm. and it opens up the whole world and then that's the italics and then the, 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 the fact there's this reflection on an aspect of that walk. Is that something you were really thinking hard about when you were... Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it was one of those very positive in, uh, exchanges between me and, and the publisher where we, we came out of this sort of dialectical process of, of how do you... If you tell people to, to think a certain way, any intelligent and interesting person will react against that. So the, the whole purpose, particularly of fiction, but also of, of, of good non-fiction, is, is to get the ideas past that resistance. And so that, the, the, the walk I'm doing there, I walk for three hours, and within that three hours I try and demonstrate that I've discovered some aspect in common with people who travel for five years and covered tens of thousands of miles. Um, so instead of writing the sentence, if you try hard enough, you can notice an awful lot in three hours, it took me, <laughs> it took me you know, um, large parts of the book to, to show rather... I mean, that's the golden rule, isn't it? Show rather than tell. Can, can I just add? So who, who asked that question? I just want to... Just a totally useful, a totally useful uh, thing. There's a book called The Ground of Slant. Do you, do you know about this book? It's a, it's, a, it's a collection of poems that really foregrounds what you're talking about. So the poem is regarded as a landscape, as a, as a, as a shape. Mm. The ground is slant. I can't remember who edited it, but it's a, it's a fantastic collection. Harriet Tarlow. Harriet Tarlow. Thank you. I have a question down here, and then I'll come over there, and then I'll come over there. So. Um, 
what do the speakers feel about um, uh, writing about place? Is it inherently political? Okay, so the question is, is writing about place inherently political? Sounds like a geography conference all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Please go yeah. first. I'm, I'm happy to. Um, yes, yes. Um, but particularly in, in this country, because we have a, a, an almost textbook example of rights of way which, which have their limits, and the second you look at those limits. I mean, if, I mean it, within the work I do in natural navigation, I can teach somebody how to find north, south, east, or west using nature really quite quickly. But it, equally quickly, we realise we can't walk north most of the time we want to. You know, it could be a physical constraint like a, a building, but more often than not, it's simply private property. And if it's not private property, it'll be public property with a sign on it saying, do not go here for, for these various reasons, some of which we, we support instantly. We don't want to walk across you know, power lines on a, on a railway, <laughs> railway, but others, it becomes very political when, when we pause and go, actually, I'd like to walk there, and your reasons for telling me not to walk there don't um, fit perfectly with with, uh, with mine, and then it becomes a political process. Does it inform your writing? Um, it's certainly not uh, the thing that drives the whole project, um, but it's I I I look I look for conflict in a lot of my research because that's where the most interesting ideas come. I'm talking about this dialectical process again. You know, without conflict, I don't believe we 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 learn and that, and we progress. So. Um, Political conflict is one part of, of what I look for, but it's not, not the major part. No. Sarah? I've, um, I would go further than that. Yes, I think that the landscape we have is a political landscape for reasons. I'll give you a really little interesting example. Okay, in Scotland, we don't have the access problems that you have. We have no uh, rights of way because everywhere is a right of way and always has been. And since independence, that's been enshrined in our access law, which is so much more. Um, Permissive, let's just say permissive for the moment, than the English one. Um, so I, I think that's a major political issue. I think that's one of the things, you know, next year we Scots are going to go and vote about break-off. Of course it's political. But it's also political because trees, different kinds of trees were moved into the countryside because posh people in Scotland thought it would be nice to have beech trees, which are not indigenous to Scotland, so they bought some in. And posh people in the south thought it would be nice to have Scots pines because they get a kind of um, romantic grandeur to your scene, so they bought them down. And only rich people can move trees around, or as my... Um, ancient tree expert in Dumfries and Galloway said to me when I was first starting this, he said, if you see a beech tree, look for the mansion. <laughs> <laughs> Those things, the landscape is shaped. I'll do one more example and then I'll stop. There's beautiful old dry stone walls across large parts of Scotland and Cumbria are signs of oppression. They broke up the way in which people used to farm by fencing them off from common land. And they were forced to build them themselves. <laughs> um, so that even some of the most beautiful things of our landscape come out of a politic of who owns this stuff, how do we access it, what does belonging mean if you don't have a right to be there? All those questions, I think that to try and talk about um, landscape writing of any kind, really, that eschews the politics. I mean, half my book is about the historical politics of woodland and why it is the way it is and what the Forest Act meant. I mean, I think it's absolutely key, certainly to this book. 
I know Paul has to leave at half past so, one. I know there's two more people want to ask questions, so I don't know if you want to add to that or just get the two questions. Just, just there's so many intersections and there's so many things we discovered right in Edgelands, and um, you can be standing in the middle of, of some Edgelands by a sewage farm looking at a bird... Um, um, and you can you can be looking at a bird from the circumpolar tundra that's moved into the country, but also you're using Austrian optics, and <laughs> the uh, sewage farm is owned by a Canadian pension com- company. Um, the globalization, you see globalization, uh, it's almost like plates, you know, moving around, and you, I think you see them pretty keenly actually in our Edgelands. You see them in the Roar, if, if you like. The great essay by James Meek in the, in the London Review of Books a couple of years ago about water. Globalisation, which 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 is a, a good pl- a good place to kind of just to speed it up, yeah. Get these two questions one after the other, and then we'll have some comments. Hi, um, a huge amount of writing about the environment um, involves working with existing texts and also oral narratives. Um, so I was thinking, um, this question is sort of specifically for Sarah, but maybe everybody. Um, I love your title, Gossip from the Forest, and how you talk about the etymology of gossip being linked to midwives and intimate conversation, amongst other things. And it also makes me think of um, Virginia Woolf, um, from, her voice, uh, from her essay, Anon, she says, the voice of the forest was the voice of Anon. Um, so there are a huge amount of stories of the forest uh, Paul, you also used them when you talk about Robin Hood in your book, I think. Um, so I was wondering what you think uh, about what is the nature of being an individual writer who is handing on these these stories which belong to many hands. There's one more question. Get the question first, and then we'll have to wrap up pretty quickly, I think. So there's a question down here. Let's go with the microphone a second. Um, Beverly Clark. Um, I just wanted to say basically that um, when it comes to the question of landscape, we all bring our subjective feelings to it. And to intellectualize it um, is one way of dealing with it. But um, do you think that, um, do you think basically that we each bring our own subjective um, ideas to it or feelings? Yeah, two questions there. One about um, about the, the, the relationship between forests, writing forests, or writing any landscape, I suppose, and other kinds of texts that you're kind of feeding from. And another question about the relationship between um, sort of thinking about landscape in an academic sense and, and sort of subjective relationships to it on the other. So I want to start with Paul this time and I'll come to this Just with the woods uh, thing, one of my favourite... Um, well, there's a poem... Um, in the early 17th century called Polyolbion, written by somebody called Michael Drayton. Um, and the best bits of that are the bits on Warwickshire, which is where he grew up, and the bits where he talks about the woods of Warwickshire, uh, hermits collecting simples and stuff in, in, in the woodland there. And it's... They speak, he brings the trees, he speaks of the dryads, and he, almost, he brings that landscape to life, he gives it a voice, while his muse is kind of... He, has, he imagines the muse... As this thing, almost like a, um, a muse, as a helicopter that flies over the landscape. So there are some startling ways that landscape has been imagined. And this one from the margins of the 17th century, to be honest, is not very widely read. Drayton, or certainly Polyolbion, isn't. So I just wanted to, I suppose, throw that out there and say that you, you've constantly been surprised by what's already there. And I'm in it for the, dis- for the surprise and the discovery, you know. So... Um, yeah, I really am. <laughs> Sarah? Okay, very quickly, I think the first of those two questions is 
probably the driving and most interesting question for me. I've tried to write two books about it. I do not feel on top of the thing, and I've got nothing really to add to that except thank you for raising it, because it needs to go on being raised. Uh, how we see through texts that we've already received, how we go back to texts that we've already received, and how what sorts of responsibilities um, an individual writer um, has in relation to a larger tradition. As far as I'm concerned, those are some of my key issues, but I haven't got any answers. Okay, about the subjectivity, I'm sure that's right, but I think that we have to remember that for some people their subjective head is intellectual. (laughs) You can't make that gap between emotion and um, an intellectual rigour, and we must really avoid making that gap, you know. Um, Yeah, some people are just smart as fuck, and it's who they are. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. Um, but to suggest that somehow academising or conceptualising something is always getting away from its subjectivity is, I think, in the case of many writers, simply wrong. They're just smart. <laughs> and interested in your book, you, you re- write through, quite interestingly, Alexander von Humboldt and other explorers' diaries and journals as part of what you were thinking. So is that part of what you were thinking as well? Uh, yes, I, I just because I know time's very short. I, I just well, like to. You need to go, yeah, <laughs> I really don't want to have to do that. So <laughs> I want to hear what you've got to say. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it very brief on the idea of subjectivity. Um, I'll, I'll ask everyone here and answer your question. Picture a landscape, one you love. Uh, you're at the start of a, a new relationship. It's going fantastically well. You're about to introduce this this person to this this scene that uh, they they haven't seen before. Uh, you go away, you, you stay somewhere nice, you wake up in the morning, you have a full breakfast, you go for a beautiful walk and you have a look at this scene, you show it to them. Um, ten years later in your life, you go back to exactly the same place. Um, uh, that relationship has, has ended rather, rather tragically. You've had a sleepless night as a result. Um, you miss breakfast um, and you walk to exactly the same spot and have a look. I mean, it's... Yes, it's the, the, the objective part of it is, is going to be less than half. If, 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 you, if you were to write a short piece or, or a poem about that landscape in those two instances, um, the, I think the, the subjective would, uh, would rise, to the, rise to the top of that. Well, I think I'd better bring this to an end. I want to thank um, the, the three presenters today. For the-